This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. As we look at the threat that Russia and China pose, it's really could cripple, I think, a lot of what the United States military relies on as kind of its normal operations, its basis of warfare. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The CSIS Aerospace Security Project recently published two reports that examine threats against space-based assets and the proliferation of counterspace weapons. I spoke with Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director of the Aerospace Security Project and Fellow in the International Security Program, about space as a warfighting domain. Caitlin, welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Bev. Before we delve into the reports that uh, the Aerospace Security Project has produced, I want to ask this question. When did space become something we need to think about as a warfighting domain, or has it been one since the earliest days of the space race between the U.S. and the former USSR, now known as Russia? Sure. So while I'm biased, and I think, you know, we should always be thinking about space, most people define the first space war or space-enabled war as the first Gulf War. So that was the first, at least for the United States, war where we were able to use navigation and timing services, GPS, to help the soldiers navigate through the desert and like very early precision guided munitions and other things and communication, the satellite communications that relied on space. And so as a space policy expert, we kind of consider that the first time that space was used to enable warfare on Earth. And from that point forward, now it's a common thought inclusive of all warfighting planning, I'm assuming. I certainly hope so. And that's definitely the hope and thought behind creating the Space Force and the U.S. Space Command that were both established in 2019. But space has really enabled terrestrial forces, maritime forces and air forces for the U.S. military and other militaries since the early 90s. The 2021 Space Threat Assessment analyzes counterspace capabilities of countries around the world, and that's one of the reports that your team released this month. And it lists China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and India as having the most public advances in counterspace weapons. Are they the biggest threats? I don't think you can consider all five of those countries equal threat. When we talk about the biggest threat to U.S. space systems, we tend to focus on Russia and China as the two big players, but also there are natural threats that satellites face in space, like space debris or space junk or weather, which actually space does have weather and can really affect satellites and their operation. But for this assessment, as you lined out, we look at what countries are developing counter space weapons, weapons that can affect U.S. space systems and our satellites and our ground systems as well. And for us, Russia and China are definitely at the top of that tier of who to worry about. But then kind of under that, we've seen different levels of counter space capabilities coming out of Iran, North Korea, and India, and a bunch of others. And what are the main security challenges that Russia and China pose to the United States? Sure. Well, as we 
kind of talked about earlier, the United States since the early 1990s has really begun to rely on its space capabilities to enable its broader conventional forces. If we think about just generally the amount of space that is worked into the U.S. military, it's pretty great. Obviously, there's things like GPS to help us navigate, to help enable precision-guided munitions. They help aircraft you know, navigate as well. Communication, so satellite phones, is primarily how soldiers will operate in the field, being able to talk to each other and to you know, their bases, as well as our nuclear command and control. A lot of that signaling is also run through satellites, and so it enables the president to have that capability at any time, any place. And so as we look at the threat that Russia and China pose, it's really could cripple, I think, a lot of what the United States military relies on as kind of its normal operations, its basis of of warfare. Now, that's not to say that we are completely vulnerable or that Russia and China don't also face the same problem, but it is the area that we, we tend to focus on. And if I could just follow up on that a bit, what are Russia and China doing in space that could be of a threat to our assets there? Can you talk at all about kind of give an example of something they could potentially do? I mean, could they really knock out one of our satellites that, you know, allows us to have access to GPS or allows the military to have access to GPS? Certainly. And what's really worrisome, I think, is that it's not just one counter space weapon that Russia and China are developing, but a whole suite and arsenal of different types of counter space weapons. And so often when we talk about anti-satellite weapons or ASATs, people tend to think of kind of the big flashy ASAT, which is a direct ascent kinetic kill vehicle, basically a missile launched from Earth that just targets a satellite instead of targeting a point on the ground. Russia and China both have this capability. So does the United States and so does India. However, what really worries me and keeps me up at night is all of the other capabilities that Russia and China are also developing. Some capabilities, such as electronic capabilities, allow Russia and China to cause an interference with communications and GPS satellites that you can't access them from the ground. A great example of this is we have found evidence that President Putin travels with a jamming device. So a device that creates enough radio frequency noise that the real signal from the satellite can't get through. And how we were able to detect this was actually based on a lot of reports of people's Ubers or Google Maps getting messed up, thinking that their location was really a couple miles from where they actually are, sometimes causing huge Uber surcharges and and bills for people. And so we were able to track that based on where the president of Russia was at the time. And so sometimes it's at the Kremlin that these kind of outages are reported. Sometimes it's at different places in Russia. One other example is when President Putin went to inspect this famous bridge that spans Russia into Crimea. And the uh, boats in the area, as well as cars, were reporting significant GPS outage. And so that, to us, means that he might travel with this kind of counter space weapon for his own personal protection. So it's not just being used in warfare or in a, in a conflict zone. But right now it's being used as personal protection for the president. Wow, that's amazing. And perhaps not in a good way amazing. Um, <laughs> and there's also something else I read about called spoofing. 
Sure. Spoofing, I like to think, is the big sister of jamming. So where jamming will just disrupt your signal, spoofing is actually when the receiver on the ground, so your cell phone, for example, which is attempting to pick up the GPS signal from the GPS satellite, is actually tricked into receiving a false signal. So it thinks it's getting the GPS signal, but really it's getting this other signal that feeds wrong information into the phone. And so that's a much more complicated technology. It requires a lot more technical capability. We've seen it tested by a group at the University of Texas, but we've also seen evidence of spoofing by China, suspected by the Chinese government in Shanghai, in the port, as well as along Chinese coast. And that caused a lot of ships to report wrong information. So I think the best way to describe it is there was a report from a ship captain who was docked in the port of Shanghai. And his transponder was reporting that his ship was moving at an extremely fast speed, faster than you would move through a commercial shipping port and, you know, across the water when he knew that his ship was parked. And so that's spoofing, you know, tricking the receiver into thinking that it's reading a different signal. And we couldn't quite find exactly why the Chinese government would be doing this. My suspicion is that they were trying to hide some sort of operations. There's, there is a suspicion of them trying to cover up some imports of um, Iranian oil, even though there has been you know, large sanctions against the import of Iranian oil. Both jamming and spoofing sound as if they could be, well, they are potentially dangerous in a warfighting situation or in a conflict type of situation. So what are the United States and other countries doing to counter this kind of threat? Because it seems as if it could be a larger threat than we may think it is. Sure. So this really, I think, leads into the second report that our group wrote. It's called Defense Against the Dark Arts in Space. And the impetus was because of this question that you just asked. You know, once we would talk to people, policy experts, members of Congress about the threats that are out there that can affect U.S. space systems, the natural question is, well, what are we doing about it? How can we protect our satellites? Are they just inherently vulnerable? The answer is no. And for jamming and spoofing in particular, there are several different methods you can use. And the United States military for GPS, for example, does have an encrypted GPS protected signal that makes it much harder to jam and much harder to spoof. So that signal the military has use of. However, the civilian signal, the one that you and I get in order to get directions or order Uber Eats, is completely unprotected. So I know that is something that policymakers are considering increasing and becoming more of, of the norm when you construct a satellite to protect the signal based on the proliferation of jamming equipment and spoofing equipment. And, and jamming in particular, we've not just seen jamming done by Russia and China, but also by other actors like North Korea. We've seen suspicion of spoofing from Iran. But also non-state actors can have access to this technology, which is uh, pretty terrifying as well. So if I'm hearing what you're saying, there are things in place to protect the military. But for those of us just living our normal lives who go to the ATM to get cash or order through Uber Eats or DoorDash or whatever place we order from, 
if a country or a non-state actor really wanted to wreak havoc in a way that didn't target the military, couldn't they just target the regular population and do some type of activity that would impact people's everyday lives? They completely could. There's actually a movement from the space policy community to have some of these technologies and have space declared as critical infrastructure, which would allow the United States to develop more money to further protect kind of the civilian side of space. The good news is, for the most part, if you are trying to jam uh, communication signals or the GPS signal, for example, it's very localized. So you have to have the jamming weapon in a certain area It can only spread over a certain distance and it gets weaker as it goes out. It's impacted by terrain. You know, it can't pass through mountains and stuff. And so if you're trying to jam Washington, D.C., you have to be in or near Washington, D.C. So it's very unlikely for the localized jamming. However, theoretically, you could put this kind of technology on a satellite, maneuver that satellite near the GPS satellite and then jam it from space, which would then affect, you know, a much broader area. Talking about this kind of activity makes me think there are lots of norms in international relations that countries agree to uh, abide by. Are there any established norms among nations operating in space? This is something that we talk about a lot with the conversation around space weapons. There are norms. There's a couple of treaties. For example, the the basis of international law for space is the Outer Space Treaty. And it has established that you cannot take over and claim territory on the moon or another celestial body. You can't place a nuclear weapon in space. The country is responsible for any action that it or a company from its country takes in space all good things. But as space becomes more complicated and more uh, more widely used by nations and commercial companies, we get a lot more questions arising that seem a lot more imminent than they might have, you know, a couple of decades ago. And one of them is what are the norms around using space weapons? Right now, I would say the norm is that it's fair game. There's no international law saying you can't. When you think about armed conflict and attacks, I think Some in space are more escalatory than others, but you also have to worry about attribution. And if I'm the country who's being attacked, can I actually tell who's attacking me? That's a huge question as well to be able to then respond. Unfortunately, norms are not always good, right? Norms don't always have positive outcomes. Sometimes the norm is that you can use these weapons in space, and and that is currently what we're seeing. And I guess maybe there's an element of deterrence since if someone did use it against another country and that country could figure out who did it and had the ability to respond, I guess there is a sense of deterrence or am I not interpreting that correctly? I think there's certainly deterrence built into this. What is hard is that, at least for the United States, is that you know deterrence is really based on effective communication. That's how you deter, right? If you're going to attack me, You need to know what the possible repercussions are of that action for me to successfully deter you, change your mind from attacking me. Space, space assets, and how we, as the United States, view our space assets and what kind of response we might take if they were attacked is really unclear and often held within classified rooms, classified conversations. And so it doesn't really communicate publicly to the American public or to our adversaries, 
know, what would happen if U.S. Uh, space systems were attacked. I think this is something that General Hyten, the vice chairman on the Joint Chief of Staff, is really taking seriously, as well as the Space Force as part of establishing their own training and doctrine of, of how do we think about space in an escalation ladder if we think about conflict and how do we deter in space as well as deter on Earth. And have there been any significant changes to the approach to space threats with the change in administrations from the Trump administration, which created the Space Force, to the Biden administration? I would say not yet. You know, we're not even full four months into the Biden administration. I don't think anyone in the space community is under any opinion that the Biden administration should take on space issues first. I think we're all, everyone agrees that, that COVID and the, uh, the economic recession is way more critical. <laughs> but I do expect a lot of these to pick up. Actually, the Trump administration did a lot for space. There were a lot of policy documents that came out during the Trump administration, more than we saw in Obama, I believe, as well as a lot of steps, not just creating the Space Force and creating Space Command, but also giving NASA new direction, promising to go to the back to the moon, as well as creating certain offices within you know, the Department of Commerce and the National Space Council to deal with kind of broader space questions, questions about commercial policy and how we integrate all of our, our space assets and activities across the U.S. government. And so the hope is that that kind of momentum will continue in the Biden administration. There has been a recent commitment from the Biden administration to keep the Space Force, for example, as well as to keep the National Space Council. So we're still waiting to see how that all plays out. But it is reassuring to know that the Biden administration sees space as a, a serious topic of focus and that it will, I think, certainly get to. Well, before we wrap up here, I have to ask about the report that's titled Defense Against the Dark Arts in Space. That's a reference to Harry Potter. And I think I'm going to show my age by confessing that I might be the only person who's never read a single Harry Potter book. So I have to ask what made the team decide to use this reference, although hearing you describe what's going on in space, it's certainly in the dark arts realm. <laughs> Exactly. So I think it first started as a joke, uh, joking around that space weapons and counter space weapons were really like the dark arts and how we defend against them. And, you know, is the topic of that report. And so we were really thinking and, and joking around about how well it fit with the Harry Potter class topic, but also some of the other themes. So if you read the report, you'll see that we have a lot of images and iconography that refer to different Harry Potter spells or quotes that kind of line up with different topics of the report as well. I am a, a huge Harry Potter fan. It was something that I grew up with. And our director, Todd Harrison, he is currently reading or just finished maybe the books uh, with his daughter for the first time. And so it was on both of our minds as we were thinking and, you know, dreaming up this report. And we just thought it would add a little bit of levity and a little bit of, of light and understanding. I think at the very least, it makes, hopefully, makes it a little more approachable for people who are not space experts who want to learn and maybe gives them a reference of understanding that's, you know, wholly different. 
Well, I highly recommend that everyone listening to this podcast read both the reports, Defense Against the Dark Arts in Space, and also the 2021 Space Threat Assessment, because they are brilliantly done and very informative. And Caitlin Johnson, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.